Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University and I'm Director of the Children's Policy Centre. And after a couple of weeks away, it is wonderful to be back and to thank my wonderful friend and co-host for holding the seat in my absence. Anna Greta, it is great to be back with you again. Sharon, it is so fabulous to have you back. I've missed you very much. Uh, And I've also very much enjoyed following your adventures, uh, particularly on Twitter. For those who don't know me, I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician. I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at the Australian National University. So, Sharon, we should start by just asking a little bit about your trip. How was your trip? Where did you go? What did you learn? Well, it was amazing. This is the first time I've been overseas um, since COVID hit. So it was a very odd feeling to actually get onto a plane and and travel again. Uh, But it was a work trip. I spent um, about 10 days in Norway on a a project uh, on a workshop around a research project that I've been involved in over the, the past six years, which is around young people's choices about education and employment in small communities that are in transition. And that's been an amazing project. It's operating across five countries. We had the workshop in the Lofoten Islands, which is in the the far north of Norway, inside the Arctic Circle, and one of the most beautiful places in the world. So it was work, but it wasn't exactly a hardship trip, I've got to say. It was wonderful. Um, and then a couple of days in Finland talking to people about what they're doing around uh, child-centred policies and child assessment statements. Fantastic. Uh, and so for listeners, if you're not already following Sharon for her fabulous policy updates on Twitter, then you can follow her for the photos, of particularly of the recent trip. <laughs> uh, policy Forum Pod, of course, is based here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University and is produced by Policy Forum. If you're interested in designing or developing better public policy, we're hosting a series of online program information seminars from the 10th to the 13th of October, where you can chat directly to Crawford experts about the degree programs and the short courses that we offer. You can check out the website, crawford.anu.edu.au slash study for more information. And we will, of course, leave a link in the show notes. And so to today's discussion, Sharon, what are we going to talk about now that you're back? Well, we're we're shifting our focus just a little bit today. Before we go to that, Anna Greta, I, d- I did want to just say how much I've enjoyed is not the right word, but how important the conversations were um, around the healthcare system. And that was really go- very, very heavy going in places. Um, you know, we could see the pressure that that system that you work within every day is is really under stress and strain. They were such important conversations to have. Sharon, we have a crisis in healthcare, uh, healthcare system across the country from primary care through to hospitals, uh, most definitely working in unprecedented times and listening to friends and colleagues and their commentary and ideas around this, their experiences particularly, was I found quite deeply sobering. Um, I have to say I've had some great feedback from those conversations that within the the healthcare sector, uh, there was uh, some thanks and appreciation for the work that we've done in bringing forward some of those issues. 
And I've also had a few people contacting me offering glimmers of hope, some ideas about how we can do things better. So I'm sure that that healthcare sector conversation will continue. And of course, last week's episode was the antidote uh, to try and uh, to, to find the, the glimmers of hope again. And that conversation that I had last week with Tim Hollow and Catherine Trebek is one that I will go back to repetitively. I've been reading Catherine's book, The Economics of Arrival, over the last week, and I keep on recommending it to people along with Tim Hollow's book on living democracy. Uh, these ideas are so inspiring and the sort of future that the two of them painted for us uh, really offer offered some hope uh, and inspiration for transformative change. Did you have a chance to, to listen to that episode? I, I, I don't want to appear that I'm kind of name dropping or trip dropping here, but yes, I listened on to it um, on a train between Yavaskala and Helsinki, beautiful scenery passing out the, the window of the train. It was a fantastic episode. I, I really enjoyed it. I was very disappointed that I didn't get to be part of that conversation, but it was an amazing conversation between the three of you. And and what really struck me was that while we have such significant challenges, we also have the possibility for really transformative change. And I think we're seeing that globally. We see that through the, the work that Catherine's been doing internationally. But we also have that opportunity here in Australia at the moment. I think we really are potentially on the brink of something extraordinary because we have a government that. Um, is, is, is not perfect in it's the policy framework it's putting forward, but is creating an opportunity for serious conversations about these issues and is open to doing things very differently and in ways that are far more just and equitable. So, um, I felt like that conversation you had last week was giving us the sense of something really important that's about to come. And today, of course, we're starting something new, a fresh bundle of episodes, and this time we're focusing on education. Over the next few weeks, we'll be covering the school system, higher education, and a range of issues around those, those systems. But in this episode, we're really excited to start the conversation with a focus on early childhood education and care, what we often refer to as childcare in, in Australia. Early childhood education and care is so much more than looking after children in order for parents to be able to engage in paid employment. And it's so much more than just preparation for primary school. According to UNESCO, it's about the holistic development of a child's social, emotional, cognitive and physical needs in order to build a solid and broad foundation for lifelong learning and well-being. UNESCO go on to say that it has the possibility to nurture caring, capable and responsible future citizens. And I would add to that, it also has the possibility to nurture caring, capable and responsible children right now in the present and to provide really good childhood experiences for all children. And as we've been saying, Anna Greta, I've just returned from Finland and talking with colleagues there about, amongst other things, early childhood education and care. And there the emphasis is very much on the child. Early childhood education and care is considered to be a right that every child is entitled to. And it's about fulfilling children's human rights. It's about building relationships. Um, and that's what's central to the system in Finland. And I think that's what we, we should be aspiring to in Australia, to putting children right at the centre. However, Australia's investment in the sector doesn't necessarily reflect its importance. The investment of Australian governments as a proportion of GDP is below the OECD average, as are enrolment rates for three and four-year-olds. The childcare workforce in Australia is also relatively low paid and highly gendered. It's overwhelmingly female. Over 200,000 staff members working in early childhood education and care, now over 90% of them are women. So to talk through these issues and to discuss how we can go about creating a really first-rate childcare system in this country, we have two fabulous guests with us today, Dr. Leonora Reese and Professor Deb Brennan. Leonora, could I ask you to introduce yourself to our audience? Hi, Sharon. Hi, Anna Greta. Thank you for having me. It's great to join you. I'm Leonora Reese. I'm an economist by training, and my 
research really focuses on gender gaps in the workforce and gender inequality. And once we start looking at gender inequality in the workforce, we see that it spills out into uh, gender inequities across society. So my research also focuses on what is the evidence base, what policies uh, do we need to implement? Um, so it takes a practical point of view. I have a, a past um, past experience in, in public policy, uh, worked for the Productivity Commission as an economist for several years. And being an economist um, in economics, uh, you know, gender is not the best profession for gender equality. So uh, within my profession, I've also worked with a great team of other female economists in uh, creating the Women in Economics Network in Australia as a way of bringing greater uh, gender equality into our own field. Lenora, it's so great to have you with us today. And that Women in Economics Network is such an, an incredibly important um, strategy that, that economists have developed and the female economists have developed. So you know, that's that's so very welcome. As I said, we also have with us today Professor Deborah Brennan. Uh, Deb, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So my training has been in um, originally in political science and I've worked throughout my career in areas related to gender and social policy. I've focused particularly on early childhood education and care, but also on cognate policies, parental leave, for example. And of course, I have a, a strong interest in issues around the, um, the labour force. I've always been quite connected um, both with governments but also with the community sector and non-profit organisations and I think that's been something I've been able to bring to my uh, research over the years. So I'm delighted to be joining the conversation this evening. Deb, it's so great to have you with us. I, I know I've followed your work on this issue for so many years and it's fantastic to have the opportunity to talk to you and to Lenora about these issues. And I wonder if, if we could perhaps start at the beginning, if you like, uh, with some scene setting. Deb, perhaps to start with you, how would you characterise Australia's early childhood education and care system or childcare system, as we often call it, as it stands today? Well, I think that it's a system um, that undoubtedly has problems but also has an enormous amount of potential. And part of the exciting potential surrounding this policy area at the moment is just the extraordinary focus that's being put on it. Certainly the new Labor government has come in with, with a big agenda around ECEC, but it's not just a government agenda. There's enormous interest now uh, in this sector and in the way it relates to other aspects of society, particularly to, um, to women's labour force participation. And that's coming from uh, both sides of politics. It's coming from economists. It's coming from think tanks. And I just sense an enormous sense of, of interest and excitement. But at the same time, we'd really face some enormous problems in, uh, in early education. We do not have enough services to go around, but critically, we don't have a labour force that's ready and equipped to, to cope with a rapidly expanded service system just yet. In fact, probably our, our most critical set of problems are in relation to the labour force. And although we're hearing um, a lot at the moment from labour, and it is very welcome about the cost of childcare and the need to increase subsidies so that we have what's commonly referred to as cheaper childcare, a phrase we might return to, um, I think that's really uh, uh, only a part of the problem. And there are other aspects, particularly to do with, with workforce, to do with the guidelines around uh, accessibility and to do with quality that we just simply must address if we're to move towards a world-class system. Leonora, I wonder if, if you'd like to, to add to that or give any of your thoughts on, on where we stand at the moment with our early childhood education and care system. Yes, yeah, so looking at the early education and care sector, if I was to describe it in one word, I would use the word undervalued. So it holds incredible importance economically, socially, 
And yet it's taken for granted, partly because, or probably mainly because, it has traditionally been seen as the work that's in the domain of women. And as our economy evolves in particular to be more focused on cognitive ability, you know, on knowledge-based jobs, um, human services, the human development that takes place from day one of a child's life is incredibly important. And so whether we call it care, whether we call it human development, early education from, from day one really matters for not just the individual's potential and capacity to you know, achieve um, in life, but also for wider society. So the the workers who have dedicated themselves to providing this care have not been fully recognised or valued based on the way we currently measure the economy. And that translates into relatively low pay, low status, um, low uh, career advancement opportunities for workers in that sector. And even though there's a lot of platitudes that, you know, we appreciate the care sector, we appreciate our early learning and then and teachers um, more strongly now after going through COVID, we're yet to really see that trans transform into really um, substantive changes in terms of pay and recognition. I think the gender norms that underpin our society and the fact that social expectations of the roles for men in society do not really extend to playing a role in care. I think that's a major issue that we need to address when we talk about elevating the importance of the care sector and the early education sector, elevating the wages, um, breaking down the gender norms that currently really suppress society's valuation of that sector. So the two of you have just done a great job, I think, of the scene setting for today's discussion, both highlighting the serious challenges that we face in terms of childhood, uh, early childhood services, but also the opportunity that we have, I think, for transformative change. Deb, I'd like you just to flesh out the background. Um, I know you've you've been contributing in this space for a while and you've got a wealth of experience in terms of the politics. How have the politics of childcare in Australia evolved over the last couple of decades? Thanks very much, Anna Greta. Um, certainly over the period that I've been observing and involved in the sector, there have really been some extraordinary changes. Only a few decades back, Early childhood education care was a really marginalised policy area. It was something that was seen as only of interest to either a few radical feminists or some um, nice ladies who liked working with and, and caring for children. But the extraordinary increase in scientific knowledge about uh, human development and child development that Leonora referred to is one of the things that has really transformed the sector and brought a whole range of new players into uh, into policy debate and, and demonstrating really strong uh, interest in this domain. So I think on the one, we've had scientific interest, but we've also had rapidly growing economic interest in the role that the early childhood education services can play in promoting um, women's labour force participation. We've not, however, seen an equal focus on the rights and needs of children and their place in the sector. And I, I hope uh, that that's something that we'll have an opportunity to explore a little bit in this conversation. But really, the big change that I've seen is this policy area coming right to the centre of public policy. And this is a very critical moment in this country right now. So it's very opportune to be having the discussion now. Both of you have, have pointed out so powerfully um, just the 
the extent to which gender comes into play here. And we really can't talk about issues of early childhood education and care without thinking about gender. And I wanted to take us kind of to a a bigger picture just for a moment. One of my favourite conversations on the pod was our conversation with Marilyn Waring last year. And Marilyn talks so powerfully about the ways in which societal structures and values shape gender roles and gendered patterns of inequality and how they shape the the nature of care and how we value care. Leonora, you wrote a fantastic piece in the conversation very recently um, about the the Jobs and Skills Summit. And you made the point that last time there was a National Jobs Summit, there was only one woman present, um, and that was Susan Ryan, who was such a trailblazer. Leonora, when you look at that summit and now the most recent summit, what does it tell you about the way we think about economics and policy and, and how that's changed over time? Well, thank you, Sharon, for that lovely feedback. I appreciate it. And I'm so glad you mentioned Marilyn Waring because she's right up there in terms of being a trailblazer along with people like Susan Ryan for really uh, raising awareness about these issues many, many decades before all the other mainstream policymakers and economists um, picked up on it. Uh, so this historical backdrop to the current summit is really quite informative. It, it For a start, it does the fact that we had a 50-50 representation and participation of women in the 2022 Jobs Summit in contrast to that summit that was held back, uh, what was it, uh, 30 years ago um, and having only one female there, that obviously speaks to an expansion of, of women's involvement but also voices um, in policymaking. It's one thing to, to be a female in the policymaking sphere. It's another to have a voice and, and influence. Um, so that does constitute a, a shift, a very welcome shift. Uh, there's obviously still a lot of ground to go in terms of making sure those voices are diverse across representing all groups of women as well. And uh, I guess the other the other key thing is that, you know, what stands out with the, the summit discussion was that economic crises have a way of spotlighting problems that really should have been addressed long before we reached a crisis point. And a common uh, motivation for taking a strong interest in How do we increase women's labour force participation? How do we provide more care services or make childcare more accessible and more affordable so that more women can join the workforce? It can be traced back to the current labour shortage, the shortage of skills and workers that most industries and most employers around the country and indeed around the world at the moment are experiencing. So these types of economic crises have a way of suddenly uh, necessitating a, a sharper interest and concern about the barriers that have existed all this time to a more inclusive and equitable system. So even though that was an underlying motivation, I do sense that there was a more genuine appreciation and recognition of the importance of breaking down these inequitable barriers to women's labour force participation and indeed the participation of many other cohorts who have been marginalised and excluded from the workforce, uh, including older women, migrants, people living with a disability. And, and so I think that that does compel us to look more, you know, more closely at what uh, what policy barriers stand, stand in the way really should not have been erected in the first place. But then it also has to be grounded in a place of understanding that the care sector and the early education sector have have a great economic importance that has been yeah it's been undervalued for so long and it is an enabler of workforce participation it's an important investment it's not just a cost for government it's an investment for our society and having more women participating in the summit i think meant that there was a critical mass of people who could speak perhaps a little bit more authentically uh, about that. Um, 
and to put forward that case and to help others in the room who perhaps hadn't thought about it quite quite as seriously before to reconsider how the impediments to women's workforce participation are a reflection of inequities in our society. They're a reflection of of barriers and systemic and structural impediments. So I think it really sort of opened up or expanded the conversation by having far more women in the room and and a greater diversity of men, I hope as well, who, who could relate to these issues who could bring a, a more diverse spectrum of views and values and expertise and lived experience so that when we collectively discuss and interrogate and navigate our policy solutions, we're actually bringing along a greater diversity of voices and that diversity is an ingredient for better decision-making and ultimately more effective outcomes as well. So thinking about relatability and experience, maybe we should talk about some of the practical issues in childcare and particularly uh, for those with young children. Affordability is a major concern. 2021 research from Victoria University found that childcare was unaffordable for more than 300,000 Australian families. And I'm wondering if either of you would like to comment on why childcare is so unaffordable for so many people in Australia. Deb, could we start with you? I'm happy to to make some comments about that. Could I just make a preliminary comment building on a point of Leonora's, which is that the gender equity issues embedded in, in childcare are absolutely critical. But another set of issues, and I think that Leonora's laid them out very well f- for us, There's another complementary set of issues which we could think of as being about generational inequality, and that's where I would bring in the focus um, on children. And while I'm absolutely thrilled about the the growing interest in gender equality issues uh, in relation to this sector, I'm not seeing an equivalent interest in the rights and needs of children themselves. And when we see early childhood education and care discussed purely as a way to promote labour force participation, and I'm not suggesting, Leonora, that that's the only focus that you have, but we do sometimes hear that, then what happens is that the actual, the quality of the care and the needs of children themselves are very readily sidelined. And There's a lot we could talk about there, which we probably don't have time for. But I I would say, firstly, that I think that's poor policy in terms of not recognising the opportunities we have to, for example, catch developmental delays early to introduce early intervention and so on. But more broadly, we miss the opportunity to invest in a double dividend So we can have on the one hand supporting women's workforce participation, on the other investing in the health, well-being and all-round developmental as well as educational readiness of the next generation. So I did want to just slip that in somewhere. The the question about the the high cost of childcare for Australian families is a very interesting one and personally I'm delighted to see that the ACCC uh, is going to be exploring this question in some detail. Um, we've, we've watched for years as subsidies to the sector are increased and those subsidies are just quickly gobbled, gobbled up and prices rise and there seems to be a never-ending cycle of, of more subsidies, higher prices, inquiries, more subsidies and higher prices. We can't afford to keep going on like that. And there are a whole lot of issues to do with the the structure of the of the sector, the nature of the subsidies, and and indeed the mix between private and a uh, private for profit, uh, not for profit, and uh, government auspices that I think we need to look at very closely in Australia to see where are we really getting the most value for our money, and are the now billions of dollars going annually into early childhood education and care 
going, uh, being spent in a way that delivers quality services at a fair price. I think we've got a, a long way to go to explore those those issues. Deb, thank you. You've mapped out those the complexity of those issues so so beautifully. And of course, a key part of this is the role of the workforce. And we know that um, people who are working in childcare are, are often paid very low wage, sometimes just above minimum wage, which sees them struggling to support themselves and their families, particularly with, with rising cost of pressure, the cost of living pressures. And that also goes to the undervaluing of that workforce that we flagged earlier in this conversation. Leonora, I wonder if, if you wanted to pick up on some of these issues around the nature of the workforce and how we need to think about the people who are central to providing early childhood care and education. Yes, look, to build on the really important and excellent points that Deb has made there. So, so early education and care is a sector that delivers these multiple dividends. That's perhaps one way to, to tie, tie it together. It's a way of developing the skills, the capabilities, the human flourishing of these young people. It's a way of, uh, enabling uh, that their parents and their carers and other family members to participate more fully in the economy. And I think we do need to keep those multiple dimensions all very much front and centre so that we, as Deb has mentioned, that we don't think of it as just a, a babysitting service. That's a really negative and narrow and demeaning way to think about it. But we come back to thinking about how it is an investment in in these precious little people. And if we can do that, then we can also achieve a, a more accurate appreciation of the skill demands of early education and childcare workers. This is highly complicated, complex, sophisticated skills. It's cognitively demanding, it's mentally demanding, it's emotionally demanding, but it hasn't been recognised as such. And that is contributing to it being relatively low pay. So a reassessment, a reappreciation of the skill complexity of this work is absolutely essential. Thank you both. I think you've both beautifully mapped out both the challenges and the opportunities we have thinking forward. We're going to take a very short break now and then we'll return to continue this really critically important conversation about early childhood education and care and perhaps to start thinking a little bit about what we might like that system to, to be like in the future. So listeners, please don't go away. We will be back with Leonora Rees and Deborah Brennan in just a moment. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Listeners, welcome back. We're here with Deborah Brennan and Leonora Reese talking about early childhood education and care. Before the break, we were talking about some of the issues facing Australia's childcare sector, but now we want to take some time to reimagine and to think about what an excellent system might look like. To do that, I'd actually like to start by focusing on the children's experience and ask my friend and colleague, Sharon, to jump in, who, as regular listeners know, Sharon is the director, of course, of the Children's Policy Centre here at the Crawford School of Public Policy. And I'd love to hear, Sharon, I know you've published some pieces just recently in the conversation reflecting on what children want from government and from government policy. 
So I wonder how policymakers should be engaging with children and learning from their experiences to help us to build a truly excellent childcare system. Well, thank you so much, Anna Greta. I, I feel that you know, in the company of Leonora and, and Deb, it's it's quite a privilege to have the opportunity to to jump the mic and give a few thoughts as well. Um, and I'm really keen to hear their thoughts on on these issues. But I think Deb and Leonora have both already made the point that the the one group of stakeholders, if you would like to use that language, that is so often neglected, forgotten about, marginalised, ignored, when we're talking about early childhood education and care, are children themselves. And we have, as Deb has already pointed out, incredibly powerful scientific evidence about the importance of early education and early relationship building for children and how that sets the foundation for the rest of their lives. So we've had over the past probably 15 or 20 years an explosion in evidence around the importance of the first thousand days of a child's life. And that's extended out now to the first 2000 days, you know, to that, that those first early years being so absolutely critical to everything that follows for human beings. When we, we hear childcare talked about in Australia currently, as Deb and Leonora have already noticed, it's, it's often, if not exclusively, predominantly about how to free women in particular to join the labour force. Or we might hear a little bit of discussion around what we might call future human capital development, how we can think about what children can become. But I think what we also need to think about much more centrally in these conversations is children as human beings now and children who have human rights, children who have dignity and children who should be involved in conversations around childcare. Now, of course, talking to a six-month-old about what it is they want is is a difficult process. You know, that's not something that um, is feasible in the way we might talk to a 10-year-old about what they want from school, for example. But I've just come back from Finland, Finland, which is, you know, really leading globally in terms of how they think about children's place in early childhood education and care. And colleagues there was were talking about the ways in which um, people who work in the sector are taught through their own education to think about children as being central. So they gave the example of when changing a nappy, it's seen as not something that you're doing to a child, but a process that's with the child. So early childhood educational professionals in Finland are taught to think about how they might talk to the child while they're changing the nappy, how they might sing a song, how they might ensure that the child is comfortable and is 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 happy during that process. They talk about the way in which they listen for cues from children, when children are feeling happy, when they're feeling sad, when there are learning moments, when there are moments for relationship building between adults and children and between children. And I think all of that creates a far more child-centered system when we start to think, what do we really want to create here? And if we think we want to create an environment that's supportive and positive for children both now, not just in terms of the, the, the people they'll become in the future, then we start to really change the way we think about children, think about the system, and think about the people who work within it. And, and the one other small point that, that I would make is that when we're thinking about the importance of early childhood education and care, we also need to recognise that it is an institution. It's an incredibly important, important institution but I think we do need to question how many hours a day it's good for children to be within that institution and how we can ensure that there's a balance between that institution of early childhood education and care, parents' work, and time that families can spend together. And I think that's really important that we don't lose, um, particularly when we're being driven by discussions about labour force involvement and, and productivity. Sharon, you've really got my imagination. Imagine designing a childcare system which is around the child and the experience of the child as the primary driver. You've, you've done such a beautiful job there of mapping out the, the benefits of thinking from that perspective. I'd love to hear from Deb and Leonora now about your perspectives on what the principles are to make a truly world-class childcare system. Deb, would you like to start? 
Thank you. Um, one of the points I'd make at the outset is that Australia is very fortunate. We have a document in Australia which is titled Being, Becoming and Belonging, which establishes the architecture for what goes on in early childhood education and care services across the country. We're very fortunate in that regard because it applies to every type of education and care service for our youngest children, regardless of whether they're childcare, preschool, whether they're private for profit, not for profit. It's a, a beautiful and well thought out document. What we don't have always is a, um, a workforce that is sufficiently trained, supported and resourced to implement the brilliant framework uh, that, that we have in, uh, in existence. So that's one of the first things I would say because I, I fully endorse the, the notion of, of children at the centre of policy making here. Another aspect of having children at the centre of policy from my perspective would be that as a country we make childcare uh, available to children in their own right, not governed by whether or not their parents are engaged in the labour market. So I'd like to see a universal system by which uh, I, I don't mean that every child is placed in a childcare centre when they're born, but I mean that families have access to at least a core of uh, I would like to see free hours of EC, EC, which can be supplemented by low-cost paid hours that might accommodate parents' additional needs, such as workforce participation. I'd also like to see a real policy focus on the equitable distribution of services and on ensuring that high quality services are located where the most disadvantaged, the children in the most disadvantaged circumstances are living, because we are simply not seeing that in Australia. Uh, there are exceptions to this, but in general, we see high quality services in more high income areas and that's uh, that's simply not acceptable. So th those are a couple of points. I could come back and make some others, but I'm sure Leonora might like to introduce some points as well. And Leonora, I'd love you to bring us back as well to, to the gender equity side of this equation and, and workforce participation, uh, particularly for women and the way in which that fits in to the wonderful model that Deb and Sharon are providing us with. What are your thoughts? I'm learning so much from this conversation alongside Deb. It's just so enlightening hearing hearing your thoughts and expertise on this, Deb. Um, coming back to Sharon's point about a, a child-centred system, I think a great strength of that approach is that it's transferable to other forms of care. So if we expand and think about the provision of care for people living with a disability, the provision of elder care, the provision of care for uh, all other individuals in society who deserve it, then this system that's focused on the person experiencing and receiving the care um, brings us back to this as a matter of, of human rights and dignity. So I think that's a really um, powerful strength of that approach. Um, coming back to, you know, the, the childcare system in Australia Look, as an economist who's focused on gender equality, one of the dimensions about the care system at the, at the moment is that it is not compatible with permitting women to fully participate in the workforce to the extent that many of them aspire to. So I think that remains a, a central concern for, for policymakers alongside uh, all of the other important issues that Deb and, and Sharon have mentioned. And Sharon and, and Deb are both exactly right that we can't just be focusing on the cost and using this term cheaper childcare because that also suggests an erosion of, of, of potentially, you know, status or the quality of care. Um, so using the the word affordability, I think, is very important there. What is within reach and what is accessible and available, particularly in terms of geographic location, all of those criteria need to be addressed simultaneously. So we're not focused too much on reducing out-of-pocket costs at the expense of these other important criteria. 
international experience shows that if you jump ahead and try to reduce the out-of-pocket cost of childcare for parents in a well-meaning way in trying to make it more affordable for for households um, and therefore to boost women's workforce participation, if you don't also invest in expanding the capacity of that sector to deliver more places and maintain the quality of care that they aspire to, you will experience a deterioration in quality and it puts pressure on the system to increase prices to compensate for the higher demand that's being placed on that sector. This is what has been observed um, in, in Canada. And so until we come back to our starting point, which is the origin of this conversation, valuing care and the care sector workers and early education workers, until we get that step right, we're jumping too far ahead and we have a very high risk of destabilising the system. Another potential outcome is we see segregated markets. So we have a low cost, low quality system because there's families out there that are willing to pay more. That attracts worker, um, the childcare workers to that sector. And so we end up with the most vulnerable and disadvantaged cohorts of society missing out on high quality care. So we've got to get the sequencing of our childcare policy right in Australia so that we don't jump ahead and actually destabilise. Lastly, as an economist, um, I would like to see a greater computation and recognition of the importance of care in the government budget. So we don't just talk about how much we spend on care, but we talk about how these dividends, these benefits flow back into society in terms of human capital development, economic participation of women, building our well-being, and this harmonises really neatly with the concept of a well-being budget. Leonora, I wonder if we could just follow up a little on that, and, and I'd like to hear both your thoughts on this, but Leonora, perhaps we can we can start with you. And I think we, we're uh, recording this episode in, in late September. In October, we're expecting to see the Treasurer deliver what has been described as a wellbeing budget. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like. And I think we're probably on a journey rather than seeing um, an immediate change in October. But, but Leonora, just to follow on those comments that you made about the, a wellbeing budget, what in concrete terms would you like to see in that budget to help us begin that journey, um, particularly in relation to uh, to early childhood education and care and both the workforce and the gender equity issues that you've so beautifully mapped? Well, thank you, Sharon. Maybe I preempted what your next, next question was going to be there. Um, look, so you're exactly right that the proposal to create a well-being approach to our budget in Australia is going to be a journey, and I believe that the Australian government is opening up uh, and being quite consultative and, and in, you know, inviting input on this. And really, what it's about is when the when you hear the treasurer announce the budget. In the past, often, you know, the highlight or the centerpiece of the budget was. GDP, gross domestic product, you know, what, what is our growth rate? How much is economic activity can be measured? And were the prospects of economic growth strong in the future? And economists, many good economists are well aware of the shortcomings of, of GDP. It doesn't measure a lot of the things that really matter for um, our quality of life and our lived experiences. And it can actually increase due to things that aren't necessarily that great. So there are so many limitations to GDP that when we think about the wellbeing approach, we should think about how we are expanding and broadening the dashboard of measurements and indicators that we're focusing on and that we are hoping to you know, improve as a measure of, uh, of, of progress um, and as a way of benchmarking whether or not this, these government choices, what do we spend money on, how do we tax, to what extent are they contributing to improving the metrics that matter 
for quality of life. GDP has been used conventionally because it's easy to measure, um, but it, but I think the wellbeing budget is about expanding it. Now, some of the things that you might include there are, for example, measures that reflect the state of the environment and natural resource sustainability. It could include measures of economic inequality. So we have an overall GDP, but we also want to think about the distribution and, and the gap between the richest and the poorest people in society. It can include measures of well-being that are disaggregated according to socioeconomic background, according to, to geographic location, according to First Nations, Indigeneity, various other intersectional dimensions of uh, people's experiences in life so that we get that cross-section of experiences um, rather than just an aggregated or average number. When it comes to early childhood uh, education and care, uh, I guess there there are a suite of indicators that could be used to, to benchmark and monitor progress in terms of children's well-being is probably someone like Deb is really the expert here who can suggest what some of those measures would be. Sometimes they're objectively measured or sometimes they're subjective measures of well-being. And so developing that type of metric for uh, Australian children, I think, would be a a really important contribution uh, to a well-being budget because that actually brings a intergenerational perspective uh, to our budget. Equally, we probably would want to include indicators that measure quality of life amongst our older generations as well. How many are living above the poverty line, for instance? What is life expectancy? All those types of measures that matter for the human well-being from the early days right through uh, to older age. Deb, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well, and particularly as we move towards, you know, thinking about a wellbeing budget, perhaps ultimately a wellbeing economy, how early childhood education and care fits into that. And you've already noted that we have that really strong foundation to build on through the the early years learning framework, um, but we we then have a bit of a gap around a, a range of other issues. What would, how would you like to see us moving forward here? I think that one of the really rewarding aspects of thinking deeply about early education and care is that it does quickly take us into such so many broad um, and fascinating and important areas of social and economic life. So we've already taken that that journey from uh, the child, uh, her or, or himself, to the wider family and to the community. And one of the things I would say is that my ideal early education and care system is one that would be embedded firstly in a suite of other uh, progressive and child and family-centred social policies. So, for example, I would like to see a really well-funded paid parental leave scheme that ensures we don't have any infants going into uh, childcare at a few weeks of age unless in very Except exceptional service uh, circumstances. I'd like to see families as as they have the opportunity in in some other countries, with opportunities to settle their children into early uh, uh, learning settings without an economic penalty for doing so. I'd like to see that we had appropriate sick leave policies so that there's no there isn't that temptation to send children off uh, to the centre when they're unwell for economic reasons. Um, and there are some wonderful and models of, of how this can actually be done. And, of course, I'd like to see families having access to reduced hours of work when their children are young, at, at least when their children are young, so that we, we would use our or deploy our early education care system indeed to make economic opportunities more available to women, as we've been talking about, but also to make rich engagement in family life more available to uh, to men and to fathers. So those are some of the things that I would really be looking for as we move towards ideas of, of well-being and human flourishing as being uh, central to our economy and society. 
Wow, I could listen to the three of you mapping uh, this beautiful landscape of early childhood education for uh, quite a lot longer, Uh, but we will need to wrap up today's conversation. And we do like to ask what is often a difficult question to just to wrap up the discussion, which is what your favourite piece of advice, your number one piece of advice to policymakers as they look to transform our system, what is your favourite piece of advice? I think I might say in in relation to early childhood education and care, really listen to the people who are right there at the coalface. Think of ways to engage with children and crucially with children's families and communities. Families and communities have so much to tell us about the kind of service landscape um, that they would like to see Listen to the educators because it's another group that is really marginalised in terms of policymaking and yet these are the people to whom we entrust our children day in and day out. And I think we are moving towards developing interesting, enjoyable and sophisticated ways of listening to children as well. So I think those would be my my pieces of advice. Fabulous advice. How about you, Leonora? I hope this is well received. Um, <laughs> I, look, my advice would be do not make assumptions about what's going to work or not. And I guess I'm informed by something broader than child, the child uh, care sector, but in my own work I look at, you know, how do women advance in the workforce and the advice that's often given, you need to be more confident, you need to be more assertive, more ambitious so when I interrogated that and I evaluated, so the key word there is evaluation, I found there actually was no evidence to back up that common advice. So policymakers evaluate, don't make assumptions. What a great place to leave today's discussion. I'm so grateful for the three of you and your contribution to the, the beginning of our discussions on the role of education in this crucial area of education, early childhood. Thank you so much for your time, Deborah Brennan and Leonora Reese. Thank you. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for a wonderful discussion. Sharon, what a fabulous place to start our series of discussions around education. And I have to say, the the landscape that you guys painted for me of how the, how we could reframe a system which is focused on the child and the needs of the child and focused on, on the care and thinking about that intergenerational benefit um, and the, the longer-term impacts on children and on families was so deeply inspiring. And it did remind me a little bit of the conversations that we had last week and and particularly picking up on the conversation we've just had on well-being and using a well-being framework or well-being economics as we evaluate the pros and cons of different policy approaches. Reminds me the conversation with Catherine Trebek last week that economics should be a tool that we use to achieve social aims and that we shouldn't find ourselves defined by the economics and particularly perhaps finding ourselves defined by GDP is something that we can move past now, seeing that broader impact on both the social uh, elements of society as well as the environmental impacts. Uh, But this is your area and so I'm sure you enjoyed that conversation. What what were your favourite parts? I, I did really enjoy that conversation. I really enjoyed hearing both Leonora and Deb. I particularly enjoyed hearing Deb map out her vision of a child-centred approach to the the early childhood education and care system. You know, I thought she just did that so beautifully. You know, she noted so importantly that we've got that really powerful framework in Australia around how we should engage with children in that setting. And yet we've got so many gaps between the vision in that framework and how policy is actually developed and and then plays out. But I think that vision that Deb mapped out was just so beautiful. And the one thing that I kept thinking throughout was the, the way that both Deb and Leonora used the term valuing care without us prompting them at all. And I think this is such a central theme to the conversations that we're having at the moment. And, and it also struck me, Anna Greta, when I was reflecting back on those, those conversations we had about the healthcare system, which, which Ed, you pointed out is, is failing. And the conversations that we often hear around the early childhood education and, and care system and, and the challenges that's facing. And if we focus our attention 
on the people who need the care, on the patients or on the children and their families, and we focus our attention on the people who provide the care, then we almost necessarily start to reform those systems in positive directions. If we strip away all of the things that are not central, and some of that is around the, the, the discussions that we have around mainstream economics, if we can strip that back and we can focus on what is really of value, and that's care for people and care by people, then I think we start to see transformations as being very possible. Mm. Absolutely, Sharon. I think you're on to something. I think we might be. <laughs> so listeners, thank you so much for joining us for this episode today. We hope you enjoyed it as, as much as we did. We will continue talking about education over the next few weeks in this bundle of episodes. We'll leave a link to some of the publications that we've discussed in the show notes. As you know, we love hearing from you, so please do reach out to us on Twitter at Apps Policy Forum. You can send us an email to podcast at policyforum.net or join us on our Facebook page. You can find us if you just put Policy Forum Pod into the search engine. We will be back again next week. From me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. And from me, I'm Greta Hunter. See you next week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>